Hi, this is Ashley, the host of Taboo and Murder. Today we're going to talk about crazy-ass women in history, but before that, a little behind-the-curtains action. I research and write outlines for episodes, sometimes multiple in a day. Then, for whatever reason my OCD dictates, I'll record and publish raw, unedited conversations of my notes. Why do I do it this way? Time and efficiency, yes. But also because there are some subjects that we need to talk about immediately, so I move things around in the queue. That said, two of my favorite podcast hosts of all time voted on this theme. So, here we go. There are so many evil or crazy women in history. Because I will highlight the patriarchy at every opportunity, even the patriarchy fucks women out of their equality trying to diminish our capacity for cruelty. Sorry dudes, ladies can be just as sadistic, torturous, and murderous. By numbers, yes, men are still the cruel and violent bulk of history's most notable. But to steal from one of my favorite pods, Queens, let's shout out to all the badass women in history. It's a shout-out like, hey, you're the fucking worst, badass women in history. Well, in some cases. And in others, there's a little internal fist bump like, yeah, bitch, you cray, but your tenacity is respectable. Thinking of you, Katerina Sforza. She's a true feminist. So, kind of like the last pod on the left, guys, and their heavy hitters, today is going to be an overview of some fucking wicked women in history. This episode was inspired by two very different things. Research for the Holocaust episode that, as it turns out, I won't be releasing because, like, every good podcast is already done one, so there's no need. Last podcast on the left is doing a series on Joseph Mengele right now. I just listened to the two that they have out in the last few days, and woof, those home improvement breaks are needed. The soup. Ugh. If you've listened, you'll get this. So anyway, some crazy fucking women kept coming up, and I went down a rabbit hole. Shocking, right? I'm writing this post-OCD diagnosis, so I wonder if my rabbit holing will slow or stop when and if the med kicks in. Eh, breaking the taboo by sliding my mental health status in while discussing the Holocaust. And they said it couldn't be done. The second aspect of my OCD life that synced with the crazy Nazi bitches the bourgeois or bourgeois. I've been binging the bourgeois recently, and Katarina Sforza is so fucking interesting. So, Natch, I started researching her, and there's not the volume of information I thought I'd find. Queen's podcast has an episode on her, so I went back to listen and confirmed the lack of information on her is infuriating to Nathan and Katie, too. The fucking patriarchy. History is a bag of dicks, as they say. The queens, that is. Um, but what is known of Katerina is makes her worthy of this list, by the way. Pause for a sip of wine. Thank you. So these two rabbit holes merged, and here we are. Oh, by the way, this is my second attempt at recording because it's like negative a billion here in Minnesota. And the um, wonderful gentleman with Excel came out because our, like, gas in the neighborhood isn't working and our house is slowly getting colder and colder. Um, and our hot water heater isn't working. Um, and it sounded like they were trying to destroy the house. And then my three-year-old lost her mind because it sounded like somebody was trying to break down the wall of our house. Anyway, 
So these two rabbit holes merged, and here we are. I have a long list of women. I'll cover some in depth and some I'll just go over um, for future exploration. The reasoning? Time. But also the disparity of information to reduce redundancy and also because I'll naturally focus on what I find interesting. So let's jump in with some wicked witches. Carla Homolka. She is uh, really big in Canada and not for the good reasons. She hit the news in 2017. Why? Well, there was this hubbub after a media report said that the convicted killer had been allowed to volunteer at an elementary school. Quote, local media captured images and photos. Of, I what's the difference between an image and a photo. If you're capturing them with a the camera, it's the same fucking thing. You elitists with your images. Local media captured images and photos of Homolka using a purse to hide her face Wednesday morning as she dropped off her children outside a private Christian elementary school in Montreal's Notre Dame de Grace neighborhood. Carla refused to speak with media. Now, if you're not familiar with her and her partner in crime, there are several great pods dedicated to them and their crimes. I will give a brief overview to cement her place on this list. City News reported that Homolka had occasionally volunteered at the school, including supervising a field trip and bringing her dog into the classroom to interact with children. A spokesperson for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which runs the school, told the station that Homolka was not a regular volunteer and was not allowed to be alone with the children, which would have required a criminal background check. And what that background check would have found. Fuck. Ah, fuck. I was going to try to reduce swearing, but not this episode. And I don't even know if that's possible. It just comes out like a burp. I'm classy as fuck. So, surprisingly, the school did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Sorry, Canadian press. Never got one. In the early 1990s, Homolka and her then-husband, Paul Bernardo, were convicted of crimes related to the rape and murder of two schoolgirls, Kristen French and Leslie uh, Mahaffey. I can never say that right. Bernardo was declared a dangerous offender and sentenced to life in prison, while Homolka struck a deal with prosecutors in 1993 to serve 12 years in prison for manslaughter. She had earlier told investigators that Bernardo abused her and made her a reluctant accomplice to the killings, although it was later discovered through videotape evidence she had a far more active role than she let on. A lawyer who represents the uh, French and Matthew families say it's still a kick in the gut for them to hear reports of Homolka seemingly living a normal life with her husband and children. These are joys the French and Maffei families will never enjoy because of Carla Homolka's participation with Paul Bernardo to murder their, their children, Tim Danson said in a phone interview. Danson said he's convinced Homolka was never rehabilitated and shouldn't be allowed to work with children. I must say that I agree. The evidence that came up post-trial, oh, which now I must go off script because the relation to Casey Anthony popped in my head and that bitch is fucking crazy, allegedly. So allegedly after the trial, forensics found that fire, this is Casey Anthony because I'm on tangent. Forensics found um, that she had uh, Firefox as a search engine in addition to Internet Explorer, but they never looked at her fucking Firefox or, like search history after the actual trial, 
they turned up 83 searches that were super incriminating. So at trial, they only had her Internet Explorer history, but not the history associated with Fireflax. Allegedly and all that shit. My opinion as a person, she fucking did it. Zanning the nanny was her code for giving her kids Xanax so she could go party and shit, and her kids stopped breathing, and then she went into cover-up mode. Pure speculation, my theory, allegedly, don't sue me, what the fuck was I talking about originally? Carla Homolka, yeah. So she was on video acting very complicit, allegedly. This entire episode is bookmarked with allegedly, okay? Now, moving back in time, Tilly Kilmick was born in Poland in 1876. She is a fucking wicked bitch that is hilarious in her audacity. She was flagrant about her actions. Tilly is like the poster child for zero fucks to be given. She has um, five to seven kills under her belt um, in a, a pan of crimes starting in 1914 and lasting until 1921. Otili Tilly Kilmick was being her Polish-American serial killer self very actively in Chicago. According to accounts, she pretended to have precognitive dreams accurately predicting the dates of death of her victims, when in reality she was merely scheduling their deaths. In one account, she told one of her husbands that he would die in two weeks and then basically taunted him as the days counted down. I know that this isn't funny, but everyone's long dead. And I'm laughing. I was laughing when I was typing my notes. So, of course, I'm laughing now because I just keep thinking of things like, only eight dinners left. What do you want tonight, babe? <laughs> so brazen. Okay. Totes in a probes, as Lucy from Wine and Grime would say. Back to my notes. So contemporary accounts tell of Tilly cheerfully telling her husbands and neighbors that they were going to die. There is no record of her claiming to be psychic. Check out the videos. Don't go to Breitbart to see the gore. Um, find that somewhere else, okay? But seriously, Mira Moreno Carrion, a.k.a. La Flaca, was an assassin for a Mexican drug cartel. She was guilt. She was chopped up and put into a cooler. They're making a movie about her. I'm sure I'm totally botching all of these names, so I'll post all the names in the in the show notes. But because they're making a movie about her, I'll keep it brief. Eileen Warnos. In my opinion, one of the least interesting women on the list. Her story is tragic in many of the ways we see patterns in the formative years of future serial killers. There are many movies, podcasts, and articles on Eileen. She's a standard serial killer. The only reason she has the notoriety she has, in my opinion, is her gender. It doesn't hurt that gorgeous, uh, what, how do you say her name? Charlize? Char yeah, Charlize Theron um, brought her to the big screen. Uh, lesser known, Leonardo, Leonardo, oh god, this is so fucking Italian, how do you say that? I'm gonna call her Leonardo, born in April 19, 1894, uh, yet she didn't die until October of 1917, that's fucking crazy, like my parents were alive then. So Leonardo was an Italian serial killer, better known as the soap maker, she murdered three women and turned their bodies into soap and cookies. Based on my research and unqualified position as an armchair psychologist, I think Leonardo had some mental illness that allowed her to detach from reality a bit. The reason for killing three women and making them soap? 
Human Sacrifice, of course. And actually, Human Sacrifice is an episode in the can, and if I do say so myself, it's fascinating. In 1939, Leonardo learned that her eldest son, Giuseppe, was going to join the Italian army in preparation for World War II. Giuseppe was her favorite child, and she was determined to protect him at all costs. She came to the conclusion that his safety required human sacrifices. She found her victims in three middle-aged women, all neighbors. Some accounts record that Leonardo was something of a fortune teller herself, and that these women all visited her for help. So one of the most horrible humans that inspired this episode is Isla or I-L-S-E, Isil, I I don't know, Isla, I don't know how they pronounce it in German. Let's say Isla Kosh. She could have her own episode. She probably does somewhere on the internet. In 1936, Isla began working as a guard and secretary at the Sasachuan concentration camp near Berlin, which her fiancé commanded. She was married to him that same year. In 1937, she went to Bouchwald when her husband was named uh, Commandant. While there, um, Isla allegedly engaged in a gruesome experiment where it was claimed that she ordered selected tattooed prisoners to be murdered and skinned to retrieve the tattooed parts on their bodies. It was allegedly done to help a prison doctor, Eric Wagner, in his dissertation on tattooing and criminality. The experiments done on twins injecting eyeballs with dye in an attempt to change their eye color, sewing children together, switching out the blood of twins, some fucking depraved shit was thought up and executed in the name of science by the Nazis. Ugh. In 1940, Isla built an indoor sports arena, which cost over 250 Reichmarks, approximately $62,500, most of which had been seized from the inmates or from the gold fillings that they'd had taken after they were executed. Allegedly, I don't know, speculation. In 1941, Carl Otto Koch was transferred to Lublin, where he helped establish the Majandak, I'm sure that's wrong, concentration and extermination camp. Isla remained at Bunchenwald until August 1943, when she and her husband were arrested on the orders of Josias von Waldenpeck Primort, SS, and police leader for Weimar, who had supervisory authority over Buchenwald, the charges against the Kochs comprised private enrichment, embezzlement, and the murder of prisoners to prevent them from giving testimony. Zero fucks given about the murder. Just don't steal from us and then kill to cover up your theft. Not cool, brah. So, Isla was imprisoned until 1944 when she was acquitted for lack of evidence. Rage here. Her husband was found guilty and sentenced to death by an SS court in Munich and was executed by firing squad on April 5th, 1945 in the court of the camp he once commanded. Yay. Nazi killing. That would... That's fun. That's supposed to be the last podcast on the left's next um, episode. That seems like a fun one. It's fun in um, modern warfare, shooting Nazi zombies. So Isla went on to live with her surviving family in the town of Ludwigsburg, where she was arrested by U.S. authorities on June 30th, 1945. 
Under the pressure of public opinion, she was rearrested in 1949, tried in West Germany, at which time at least four witnesses for the prosecution testified that they had seen her uh, choose tattooed prisoners who were then killed or she or had seen or been involved in the process of making human skin lampshades from tattooed skin. However, this charge was dropped by the prosecution when they could not prove lampshades or any other items were actually made from human skin. Could you imagine bringing that evidence in? I'd now like to introduce Exhibit 93, Human Lampshade. On January 15, 1951, the court pronounced its verdict in a 111-page long decision. Ilo was like, fuck this, I don't need to attend. It was concluded that the previous trials in 44 and 47 were not a bar to the proceedings. Um, so in 1944, she was charged with receiving blah, 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 blah. Um, it wasn't double jeopardy. So she was convicted of the charges of incitement to murder, incitement to attempt murder, and incitement to the crime of committing grievous bodily harm and was promptly sentenced to life imprisonment. Fun Nazi fact. Is that a thing? Maybe to real Nazis? Ugh. Anyway, of the 55,000 SS officers, almost 4,000 of them were women. Okay, let's step away from such recent times and go back and talk about Katarina Sforza. I can't hide my love. Maybe that's not the right word. Appreciation. Maybe appreciation? Yeah, let's settle with that. Appreciation for Katarina. Bitch has balls. She has all the street cred or whatever unit of measurement the kids are using to quantify such bala behavior these days. So Katerina wasn't a queen, but that in, that did not stop her from running the show. Katerina Sforza, Lady of Imola, Countess of Forli, feminist for her time, grabber of her pussy, first of her name. Oh, God, I'm so fucking excited for Game of Thrones. I can't even. She was born in or around 1463 in Milan, Italy, and died at the age of 46 on May 28, 1509 in Florence, Italy. Caterina Sforza was an Italian noblewoman and countess of, a countess of Forli and Lady of Amola, firstly with her husband, uh, Giorlo. God, I know that the L's. Giorlo. I'm going to call him Riario. Okay? It's probably wrong. Don't fucking care. Don't care, is what my daughter would say when she's sassy. So after his death, she served as regent uh, for her son, Octavio, who I think he was only like five or like ten max. So she was a countess, not a queen, but a true badass, even amongst the men of her time. To be fair, she is a fucking badass in the bourgeois, so I could be totally glorifying her based on Showtime's portrayal. In short, Katerina was an illegitimate daughter within the Sforza family, one of my favorite podcast queens, as I have said like a million times today. Sorry, guys. Or you're welcome. I don't know. Um, one of my favorite podcast queens has an entire episode about Katerina Sforza. I highly recommend that you check it out. It's fabulous. Um so she was raised in the Milanese court, the descendant of a dynasty from an early age. Katarina distinguished herself throughout um, or with her bold and impetuous actions taken to safeguard her possessions from possible usurpers and to defend her dominions from attack when they were involved in political intrigues. 
In her private life, Katerina was devoted to various activities, including experiments in alchemy and a love of hunting and dancing. She had many children, but only the youngest, Captain Giovanni Dali Bandnier, inherited his mother's forceful militant personality. Katerina's resistance to Cesare Borgia meant she had to face his fury and imprisonment. Once she gained her freedom in Rome, she led a quiet life in Florence. In the final years of her life, she confided to a monk, Si e potiso servito tutto ferrari stupi, oh god, il modo, I know that was so fucking wrong, I tried, okay, A for effort. What it means is, if I could write everything that happened, I would shock the world. You know that dinner party question, some version of, if you could talk to one person alive or dead, who would it be? For me, Katarina Sforza, and I would want to know everything. So what makes her qualified for this list? Well, the total disregard for the well-being of her six children. Let me set the scene real quick. Katarina's husband was assassinated on the seventh attempt to kill him by the Orsini family. Katerina, her six kids, and extended family were all taken by the Orsini family. The Orsini bring Katerina and children to the castle. They let Katerina go in to negotiate a surrender. She goes in because the Orsini are like, cool, 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 cool. Just go negotiate that surrender because we have your six children. So she enters the fortress alone. As soon as she gets in, she's like, we're not going to fucking surrender. We're going to kill you guys. We have, like, a shit ton of bows and arrows, and we have all these cannons. And the Orsini are like, well, we're going to kill all your kids in front of you. And Katerina was like, fucking go for it. Well, actually, the Orsini said, give up the castle, or we'll kill your kids. And Katerina lifted her skirt and said, do it. If you want to hang them in front of me, I have right here what it takes to make more children. And then she grabbed her vagina. Katerina Sforza is the OG pussy grabber. There's a famous story about uh, Katerina, the Countess of Sforza, told by Machiavelli in chapter uh, three of the discourses, blah, 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 blah. I was going to summarize it here, Um, but it's not nearly as interesting as my modernized version of what happened. Here's someone you've almost certainly heard about, Belle Gunness. Ring a bell? (laughs) I had to, okay. Serial killer Bell Gunness is reported to have mur- murdered, murdered, murdered more than 40 people between 1884 and 1908 before disappearing without a trace. Bell Gunness immigrated to the U.S. from Norway in 1881. A series of suspicious fires and deaths, mostly resulting in insurance awards, followed. Bell's M.O., posting notices in lovelorn columns to entice wealthy men to her farm, after which they were never seen again. So she'd place an ad in the paper saying that she was a widowed wealthy woman looking for a man with means to tell no one of their plans to come and join her on the farm. And dudes were like, sure, see you soon, babe. Authorities eventually found the remains of over 40 victims on her property, but Belle disappeared without a trace. A few of her crimes. Gunness married Mads Albert Sorensen in 1884. Their store and home mysteriously burned down. The couple claimed the insurance money for both. Soon after, after Sorensen died of heart failure, on the one day, his two life insurance policies overlapped. What are the odds? Though her husband's family demanded an inquiry, no charges were filed. It is believed the couple produced two children whom Gunness poisoned in infancy 
for the insurance money. Okay, that time, 1880s, um, like the death of children was super fucking common. So not victim blaming, but insurance companies, you're also not victims. What insurance company is allowing policies to be taken out on infants who are fucking helpless? That just seems irresponsible, right? You guys, this episode may be just a mess. Like I said, or maybe this didn't make the cut. I don't know. I've been recording forever, Sandlot style. My The wonderful, wonderful gentlemen that are braving the literally 50 below freezing temperatures that are trying to fix the gas shortage in our neighborhood. Well, they just, it sounds like they're tearing our fucking house down. So I have been recording for about two hours now, which means my bottle of wine's almost gone. Right? Bro. Anyway. Weirdest fucking episode. Sorry. Not sorry. I'm not going to apologize for things I'm not sorry about. I'm not re-recording this. This is me. Anyway. So Bell just had really bad luck, as several more unexplained deaths followed, including the infant daughter of her new husband, Peter Gunnis. Followed by Peter Gunnis himself. Some people have all the luck. Her adopted daughter, Jenny's body, would also be found on Bell's property. Gunnis then began meeting wealthy men through a lovelorn column. Her suitors were her next victims, each of whom brought cash for um brought cash to her farm and then they disappeared forever, basically. A few men known to have been killed by Bell, John Moo, Henry Gerholt, Olaf Svenhard. Oli B. Bunsberg, Olaf Lindblom, Andrew Heiglein, just to name a few Norwegians. In 1908, I just burped. Georgia Hardstark. Oh, I just did it again. Fucking wine burps. Sorry. I'm not classy, though. I'm not a lady. In 1908, just when Helgeling's brother became suspicious that Gunnis's luck seemed to be running out, her farmhouse burnt to the ground. In the smoldering ruins, workmen discovered four skeletons. Three were identified as her foster children. However, the fourth believed to be Gunnis was inexplicably missing its skull. After the fire, her victims were unearthed from their shallow graves around the farm. All told, the remains of more than 40 men and children were exhumed. Also, Bell was removed, um, excuse me, recorded to be incredibly tall, I think like close to six feet, with a very large frame. Even headless, the body in the fire was much shorter and more petite than that of Bell. Ray Lampy here, Lamp, it's, it looks like Lamp here, but I'm sure it's Lampier. Guinness's hired hand was arrested for murder and arson on May 22nd, 1908. He was found guilty of arson but cleared of murder. He died in prison, but not before revealing the truth about Belle Guinness and her crimes, including burning her own house down. The body that was recovered was not hers. Guinness had planned the entire thing and skipped town after withdrawing most of her money from her bank accounts. 
She was never tracked down, and her death was never confirmed. Safe to say she's dead now, but where, when, how? Nobody knows. Myra Hinley was born on July 23, 1942, and died at the age of 60 on November 15, 2002. As a lifelong murderino, I would have been like a junior in high school then. I do remember her death. I just so happened to purchase the book, The Most Evil Women in History or some shit like that, like a couple months before her death, and I had learned about her. Um, she, along with her accomplice Ian um, Brady, are responsible for the Moores murders. You probably have heard about them. The Moores murders were carried out by Ian Brady and Myra Hindley between July 1963 and October 1965 in and around Manchester, England. The victims were five children aged between 10 and 17, Pauline Reed, John Kilbride, Keith Bennett, Leslie Ann Downey, and Edward Evans, at least four of whom were sexually assaulted. Two of the victims were discovered in graves dug on Saddleworth Moor. A third grave was discovered there in 1987, more than 20 years after Brady and Hinley's trial. The body of a fourth victim, Keith Bennett, is also suspected to be buried there, but despite repeated searches, it remains undiscovered. I'm pretty sure Case filed as a series on these murders, and they're great. The police were initially aware of only three killings, those of Edward Evans, Leslie Ann Downey, and John Kilbride. The investigation was reopened in 1985 after Brady was reported in the press to having confessed to the murders of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett. Brady and Hindley were taken separately to Saddleworth Moor to assist the police in the search of the graves, both by then having confessed to the additional murders. Characterized by the press as the most evil woman in Britain, Hindley made several appeals against her life sentence, claiming she was a reformed woman and no longer a danger to society, but she was never released. She died in 2002, age 60. Brady was declared criminally insane in 1985 and confined um, in the high-security Ashworth Hospital. He made it clear that he never wished to be released and repeatedly asked to be allowed to die. He died in 2017 at the age of 79 of natural causes. An angel of death must make the list. So Mayuki Ishikawa, uh, born 1897 in Japan, History credits her with 103 to 169 victims, mostly infants, from April 1944 to January 1948 in Tokyo. Remember those years. She was arrested in January of 1948. I'm going to call her Mayuki um, because I can pronounce that better than her last name. Mayuki was a Japanese midwife and serial killer who is believed to have murdered many infants with the aid of several accomplices throughout the 1940s. It is estimated that her victims numbered between 85 and 169, however the general estimate is 103. When she was finally apprehended, the Tokyo High Court's four-year sentence she received was remarkably light considering that Mayuki's actions resulted in a death toll so high that it remains unrivaled by any other serial killer in Japan. According to a report of Children's Rainbow Center, writer Kenji Yamioto referred to the incident as unbelievable and unbearable. Yeah. In the 1940s, there were many babies in her maternity hospital, and Mayuki found herself facing what she perceived to be something of a quandary. In 
The parents of many of these infants were poor and unable to raise their children properly without financial struggle, and she herself was unable to help the infants because of a lack of social and charitable services. I have an idea, Mayuki. Do something about the social and charitable services, okay? In order to solve this dilemma, Mayuki chose to neglect numerous infants, many of whom died as a direct result of the abuse and neglect exact same experiments the Nazis were running at the same time. Nazis. The exact number of victims is unknown, but it is estimated that she killed at least 103 babies. That's like the one they can confirm 103. Almost all of the other midwives employed by the Kotobuki Maternity Hospital were disgusted by the practice and resigned from their positions, or maybe just to save face, allegedly. During this same time period, the Nazis were doing the exact same thing in the name of eugenics. Just thought I'd add that for context. Remember World War II? Who was aligned? But we exported eugenics to the Germans, so that's bad on us. Rockefellers. So, get this American-type legal maneuvering. Mayuki later attempted to garner payment for these murders. Yeah, that's fucking right. This brazen-ass bitch and her husband, Takeshi, solicited large sums of money from the parents, claiming that it would be no less than the actual expense of raising these unwanted children. A doctor, Shiro Nakayama, was also complicit in this scheme and aided the couple by falsifying death certificates. The uh, Shinku... Wait, Shin... Juku ward office ignored their actions. Yep, turn a blind eye. That's why the U.S. snatched up all the Nazi scientists. True statement. Look it up. Is uh, that a great transition to another Nazi? I think so. Irma Grease. I've heard it grass, but I like Irma Grease because she gross. By the time that Irma was a teen, she devoted herself to the Nazi cause and trained to become a nurse. <laughs> All teens, they're just crazy, aren't they? Such wackadoos. After a series of failures, Irma became obsessed with the Hitler Youth and the League of German Girls. By the time she was 18, she had moved to the SS Female Helpers Training Base, an all-female concentration camp. After her training, which stressed the feminine ideal of nutrients, she volunteered to work at the female concentration camp. She was soon promoted to a guard position at Auschwitz. From mid-1942, um, she was a guard at Auschwitz um, until the second half of 1944. She was then promoted to, oh God, uh, Rapportafurin, the second highest rank open to female KZ wardens. Soon after gaining power, she developed a reputation as a sadist. She was considered to be a nymphomaniac who had sex with SS guards as well as prisoners, the latter forcibly. That's called rape. She had young Jewish girls watch her as she raped other inmates, and according to inmate and Dr. Uh, Giselle Pearl, uh, Greece relished whipping well-developed young women on the breasts. Greece would eventually become sexually aroused just watching the women suffering. Author Wendy Adel Marie Sarti wrote in her book, Women and Nazis, 
that she beat prisoners until their faces were completely raw, kicked them with her hobnailed jackboots until blood flowed, used her dog on the prisoners, forced men and women to hold rocks above their heads and kneel for hours at a time, and had a whip which she used consistently and whenever necessary. Greece participated in prisoner selections for the gas chambers chambers at Auschwitz alongside Joseph Mengele, who loved twins and experimenting on them. I heard one rumor that they were having an affair, but I don't buy it because both of them were too fucked up to have any kind of distraction like that. In early 1945, Greece accompanied a prisoner evacuation transport from Auschwitz to Ravensbrück. In March 1945, she went to Bergen-Belsen along with a large number of prisoners from Ravensbrück. Uh, Greece was captured by the British Army on April 17, 1945, together with other SS personnel who did not flee. She was later executed by hanging. It said she was defiant up until the hatch opened. She swung dying for 20 minutes. And that's how long hangings usually take when it's done right, in quotes. Well, if it's done right, the neck breaks and death follows more quickly. But people like to show and the kicking scene from the gallows was like a football game. True statement, I swear. Check out my episode on public executions. Wowza, I'm already at 10 pages of my notes, and I shoot for just eight, so I will wrap this up, especially because I know I went way off of my notes. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm sorry. Depends who's trolling me. I, oh, I have at least like a dozen more women on my list. If this episode was interesting or even like listenable, I don't even know. Uh, please let me know if you would like me to do a second part. I'll include those that I covered um, and those that I didn't in the show notes. As always, I'd greatly appreciate if you'd subscribe to Taboo and Murder. Rate, review, subscribe, all of that fun stuff, please. The ratings make the pod world go round. Please reach out on Twitter at SMTaboo. Thanks for listening. Oh, and in all seriousness, I am going to publish this right away. I'll listen to it tomorrow. And if it's total shit, I'll delete it and I will record again when it doesn't take me five times the amount that it actually should to record this crap. Okay. Thanks for listening.